0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy podcast. And a big thank you for your patience. I know if you are a weekly regular listener, you may have noticed that We had an unexpected delay on this episode. Ideally, it would have come out last week, but due to some technical issues, it's come out this week. So, thank you for your patience in waiting for a new episode. But I promise you, it has been worth the wait. This week, I'm chatting to Emma Green, who is so wonderful. We have kind of been aware of each other's work, we've met virtually a couple of times, but to get and the opportunity to just sit and have uh, a fairly lengthy conversation—you might have seen by the length of this podcast—was um, just a real treat because Emma is a brilliant personal trainer with a PhD in health psychology who is really uh, is really talented at communicating the evidence and research for things like intuitive eating, intuitive movement um, and health at every size and non-diet approach and we really get into that today. Um, so if you're interested in all that kind of stuff I think you're going to love it we get into some really interesting studies and then second of all I just felt like we had a really great conversation about making that transition out of being in that diet culture, weight normative headspace, especially as a fitness professional, to shifting the way we think uh, about weight and health and fitness um, and all of that. So it was just such a great conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Before we get into it, just a reminder, the Train Happy Retreats are almost booked up and I don't want you to miss out, so if you didn't hear on our previous episodes, we have announced the Train Happy Retreat 2022 dates, we have the UK retreat in Somerset uh, in February and next September we are going to the island of Crete in Greece for a whole five nights basically a week and it's going to be stunning Um, and spaces are filling up fast so if you would like to find out more about the retreats check out the uh, link in the show notes I've popped it all there for you and you can click on there to find out more details about the retreat as well as how to book and of course we must do train happy trooper of the week So, this week's train happy moment comes from listener Chantelle, and she says, I've been loving getting my steps in for the diabetes steps challenge, putting on a podcast and stepping out into nature. Chantelle, I hope that is the train happy podcast, but you know, other podcasts are brilliant too. I've also started getting deliveries sent to local drop off points, and yesterday I went to collect a parcel, but once I got there, I'd forgotten my mask. Plus the post office was closed and instead of feeling frustrated, I was perfectly happy perfectly happy, just having gone out for a walk. I love that Chantal, that's just a simple, lovely train happy moment and I think when there's the intention behind moving um, a, and it's about raising money for such a great cause, I think that can be a really lovely way to shift the intention behind, you know, I must get my steps in to, um you know enjoying your walks outside getting outdoors getting some fresh air and know that you're working towards raising money for a good cause too i think that's awesome if you would like to be featured as train happy trooper of the week and you want to read more from Chantal because you may have seen we've been doing interviews with our train happy troopers of the week you can find us on instagram at train happy podcast and please dm us on there and let us know if you would like to be train happy trooper of the week and you can also read chantelle's interview on there or you can email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com all of that is in the show notes too okay enough from me let's hear from this week's brilliant guest who i think you're just gonna love this conversation emma green welcome emma to the podcast so Happy to have you. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really, i um, really good. Thank you. Yeah, really happy to to be here and chat.
1: Well, I feel like it's only a matter of time until we had you on the podcast because you are one of the kind of I feel like key people online, really, um, getting the information out there. And you know, when it comes to looking at research and evidence for an. In- intuitive movement approach, for intuitive eating, for health every size, all things which we've discussed on the podcast before. And so there's so much I want to get through with you today, but I feel like we need to start at the beginning. So for people who do know you online, they'll know your Emma Fitness PhD. And I did some research and I found out your PhD was in health psychology, which I personally find fascinating. um. So yeah, I'd love to know um, what your PhD is about and kind of what's your background.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, the kind of psychology bit was really, I studied um, psychology at A-level. Um, I didn't actually know a lot about it at that time, Um I was like really keen to just basically choose all the essay subjects at A-level. So um, I picked like sociology, uh, philosophy and ethics and psychology Um, and particularly enjoyed psychology, loved learning about the brain, about behaviour, about all these studies that, you know, that we've sort of known about for a long time and actually tell us really interesting things about why we do the things that we do and sometimes why things are more difficult than they uh, it seems like they should be and, and that um, kind of thing and yeah after that was really really keen to study it in more depth so went to uni to study psychology also really really enjoyed that um, it was just it was just really nice to feel like oh, I found my subject the thing that I really find so interesting I was so passionate about it I didn't you know um, like my getting up, you know, really early for lectures and things like that, because I was just so keen to kind of learn learn more about, yeah, about all different aspects of behaviour. So I guess the kind of, you know, normal, quote unquote, day to day stuff, but also kind of, you know, mental illness and kind of, um, you know, particularly the, the kind of relationship between like mental and physical health. Um, because I think the two, you know, are very much interlinked, but we often think of them as being quite separate um, and the health psychology actually wasn't until my final year of university um, we could like choose your um, you know some of your own modules and I elected to do health psychology um, and just found it so interesting and um, we talked a bit about different like models of behavior change and in a way like why behavior change can be really really difficult and was just found it so interesting actually and um I did, you know, a, a dissertation as well focusing on, on health psychology. I actually, um, so back in the day when um like online forums were a thing, um, <laughs> um I, I was really interested in the kind of um health concerns that people posed on these online forums and how people actually responded to them. And so I did a whole project where I kind of looked at that and that was really, really interesting. Um and um yeah, I think after that, was keen to just dive in more, did a master's in health psychology, loved that, and then was like, right, next step, PhD in health psychology. Um, my PhD actually focused on young people with diabetes. Um, so it was I was part of a larger project that was looking at essentially redesigning services for young people with diabetes in London. And my PhD kind of had to fit within this larger project, but I had quite a lot of choice about exactly what I could sort of study. Um, and so I focused on the kind of self-care side of things. So, you know, all the behaviors that people with, um, diabetes have to do to like manage their, you know, their condition. Um, you know, it's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, being aware of food and, um, you know, sometimes insulin injections or using an insulin pump or sometimes medications if it's type two diabetes. Um, and that was really, really insightful. I, I learned a lot about what it's like to have a health condition, um, particularly at an age. So I was studying kind of young people between the ages of like 18 and and 25. So at an age where like so much is changing in your life anyway, and you're kind of figuring out who you are, what you want to do, you know, things like friendship groups are really important and wanting to like fit in with other people and be quote unquote normal. Um, And you know I just yeah I learned a lot about kind of all the different trade-offs that these young people had to make about their diabetes and and sometimes it it was like they were having to make a choice between do I do what's quote-unquote best for my physical health and potentially that has a negative impact on my well-being um or do I make the other choice where I do something that actually is quite good for my well-being like maybe you know I I don't know drinking like a lot of alcohol at, at one time that actually isn't Um, you know, optimal, quote, unquote, for kind of physical health. Um, And so yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I really, you know, really enjoyed that I decided, like academia wasn't for me. um, Although I, (laughs) um, I did enjoy my PhD, I realized that I actually enjoy reading and analyzing research a lot more than I like the process of actually doing it myself.
1: Yeah, so and that's kind of, led you to working more in fitness space uh you know in the fitness space and kind of combining I suppose that psychology element and that nuance to the fitness world which can actually feel like a bit of a clash of ideas (laughs) um because sometimes I think in fitness we like to think of things as very black and white and you know it's one way or the other and um, like you say seeing people as complex individuals and knowing that yeah that element comes into it I think is not necessarily taught on your personal training course to a degree.
0: No (laughs) definitely not no.
1: (laughs) So yeah I'm interested in and I know you've written a lot and you do write a lot um, of articles which are so interesting and I was reading a few and I think, um like myself, a lot of us kind of find our way to working as weight inclusive trainers and people who want to you know come at things from a more intuitive approach um, largely due to our own stories. And so I'd be really interested in to hear about kind of how you ended up working in fitness and h- how the kind of psychology um, part and the fitness part and then your own experience, um, kind of got you to where you are today?
0: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess on a kind of personal level, um, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder when I was a teenager, um, which was something that I kind of struggled with on and off for quite a long period of time. And the recovery process, um, actually just really opened my eyes to diet culture and how pervasive it is. And actually, although it's only a, you know, still very small percentage of people who have, you know, sort of diagnosed eating disorders, loads of people have an unhealthy relationship with like food, exercise and their bodies. Um, and I don't think I had the like language to describe it as diet culture at, at that time, but was just, it just really opened my eyes to just how commonplace this is. And actually, I'm trying to almost recover into uh, a world that actually makes it very difficult to stay like you know recovered and well and kind of have a um healthy balanced approach to food food and exercise and not it not being a kind of obsessive thing or involving you know numbers and counting and and that kind of thing so I think that already kind of I guess uh piqued my interest in the idea of actually maybe this this mainstream kind of approach to to health isn't maybe quite what it's it's cracked up to be um I mean I studied to be to be a personal trainer um I think it was just at the end of my PhD actually um I to be honest wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with it um I'm just like as you can probably tell a bit of a science nerd in general um and I've always had an interest in, in exercise and just felt like Actually, that would be another kind of string to my bow to, to learn more about the kind of exercise um, level. And also maybe that, that could actually intertwine quite nicely with with psychology um, as well, because, you know, I've had this long standing interest in mental and, and physical health. Um, and I think what sometimes you see in research is. There's not enough overlap of different researchers working together. You sometimes get like psychologists are doing their thing, sociologists are doing their thing, biologists are doing their thing and no one's talking to each other. And so part of the idea of of training to be a personal trainer was actually to kind of have more of this sort of crosstalk, because I felt like within the fitness industry, psychology was still quite overlooked. Um, I think there's still... And not just in the fitness industry generally, almost this idea that, all oh, psychology is just about mental illness. And that's a part of it, absolutely. But there's loads of psychology that is not to do with mental illness necessarily, that it's just to do with, you know, like behavior and well-being and, you know, and things like that. And I felt like that was that was lacking a little bit in in the fitness industry. Um Although I will say when I did qualify as a personal trainer, I didn't immediately jump into an intuitive approach. Um, Sadly, I think (laughs) people rarely do. Um, I spent a long time in what I refer to as like macro land, right? The kind of flexible dieting thing, which, you know, I'm sure people probably kind of familiar with this idea that like, oh, everyone should track their macros, plug it into an app. Everything is quite planned out and prescriptive. Oh, but you can eat, you know, whichever foods you want, as long as it's these, you know, specific ones that fit your plan. And I think for me, that did seem flexible because I had a background of having had an eating disorder. That felt like, oh, wow. So you can actually eat, all oh, like anything you want, but and you just have to, you know, plug it in an app. Oh, well, that's fine. Like that's, if everyone just did that, wouldn't everyone, you know, be... Um, healthier and fitter and whatever and what I saw is actually no <laughs> actually no that isn't what happened I, I became just um, actually quite shocked about what I saw about some of the things with both clients and uh, you know fitness professionals as well with how obsessive they were about tracking things and they would be making choices about food purely based on how easy it was to plug it into their app not actually based on do they like the food do they enjoy it um does it give them energy does it feel good for them physically none of that um and I remember particularly being struck I went on like a, a kind of fitness holiday that was um like a sort of I guess like a retreat um kind of thing in um in Spain actually and it was a kind of I went along as a uh, although well I was a personal trainer went along as a participant basically um but there were you know Uh, fitness coaches there as well and the idea was it was a sort of mixture of you know there was like an obstacle course and things that were quite fun um and the gym and things so it was it was doing kind of fitness um but the idea was it was supposed to be doing it in quite a relaxed way it wasn't one of these sort of boot campy type ones it was much more um yeah about you know having fun in the sun exploring different types of movement etc um and we went out for a meal on the final evening And um, most of the meals that we'd had had been um, on site at the place we were staying. It was like kind of a sort of cabin sort of place. But, you know, for the last night, we went out to a local restaurant. Um, And we all ordered our food. And then when it came, one of the uh, fitness coaches got out a scale from his bag, a small food scale, and proceeded to weigh every single individual item on his plate. Um, Wow. And then... (laughs) Some people wanted some like food. Or they wanted to try something that was on his plate. And then he reweighed everything that was on his plate um, like it was completely normal. And then just put the food scale away and then started to eat. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a holiday. And this this fitness coach was, you know, quite, quite a normal fitness coach. He was not, you know, competing in a bodybuilding contest. He wasn't. This was his normal day to day what he does when he's in a restaurant you know, even on holiday. And I just remember thinking, wow, if this flexible dieting thing, how how flexible is it really? <laughs> you know, um, if, if that's what you're doing at a time when you're supposed to be like relaxing, having fun. Um, and I just think it was things like that that made me think, actually, this macros thing, I'm, I'm not so sure it's, it's working out uh, in the way that we're told it should. And actually, you know, it seemed to be causing actually a lot of obsession and anxiety around food and stress and just taking up actually a lot of extra time, right? That's a, it's a lot of admin, right? Plugging in your, you know, your foods to your, you know, to your app and, and things like that. And I think after that, that's when I started to think, okay, is there a different way to do things? Um, you know, if not this, what? And um, came across the book, Intuitive Eating, I think it would have been about third edition. I think there's now a fourth edition book, which is amazing. Um, read that and wasn't entirely sold, but enough that I was like, hmm, this is interesting. This is at least articulating a clear alternative to this macros approach. I'm not sure that it could work in practice, but you know what, I'm I'm interested. And so I kind of Again, being a science nerd, dug into the research, both about um, sort of you know weight and health and dieting, but also about intuitive eating as well. I mean, there that uh, wasn't as much uh, on intuitive eating at that stage, um, but enough within the literature to think actually, you know what? This mainstream approach to health actually doesn't result in improved health and well-being. We're told like, oh, everyone should you know essentially you know lose weight basically you know get thin and then you know everything is better and that just isn't what we see at all in the literature and not even recently right i mean uh, you know like i there i mean there's a, a very famous study called the minnesota um starvation study which um was actually carried out in the 1940s um by a researcher called ansel keys and essentially what he was um studying was so the idea was is this was shortly after the, the second world war and they were looking at the um people who had been um in concentration camps and they were looking at what was the healthiest way to actually um re-nourish these these people who had obviously been through again it was a hugely traumatic time in, in lots of ways but you know on the physical perspective actually what is the best way to actually get them back to a state of um of of, you know physical health and so and the idea of this study was they put them through um this very strict diet um won't i won't give numbers but eating a very low amount of food um and basically you know they all lost weight as happens in the short term on a diet and then basically after the after they went back to then eating as much as they wanted to they basically followed them up and and saw what happened um and that was actually, it's a really, really important study. Um, it would never get ethical approval now, so it will never, <laughs> never be able to be replicated. But I think that was one of the first demonstrations of actually all the things that dieting does to you mentally and physically, right? I mean, the, 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 um, it was only men in the study were showing signs of like an eating disorder. They were getting really obsessed with food. They were looking through like recipe books and things like that when they were dieting because their brains were just trying to get them to focus on, on food. And that's often how it, how it kind of manifests. Um, But equally after that, when they were able to eat kind of as much as they wanted, they actually really struggled to, um, with that process, they felt very out of control around food. And, you know, in the way that I think a lot of people that have been on a diet relate to that when the diet finishes, it's like they just want to eat, you know, everything, they're really, really hungry, particularly all the foods that have been kind of off limits, you know, whatever those particular foods are. Um, And, you know just really really difficult for them to get back to a kind of uh you know I suppose balanced kind of place in the way that they were before the the experiment because these were people that were chosen specifically because they didn't have any existing mental or physical health conditions um and you know the studies like that I just think were so so insightful just showing actually what what dieting really does to people you know we're we're sold that it's this magical solution to health and well-being but actually in the short and long term that just isn't the reality of of what happens Um,
1: I find that study so fascinating because like you say it's almost like this microclimate of of the diet cycle and it's so interesting that and it, it kind of puts on paper a lot of my own experiences of going on a diet and then thinking I was a foodie. And like, and don't get me wrong, I I do love food and tasty food and flavors and things, but Mm. always thinking about food and wanting to like make all these, especially make all these like healthy recipes. And you know, I was such a creative cook and because I could make all these healthy, low calorie alternatives. And what I understand that now is to just be a response to the deprivation that I was putting myself through. And actually, as a well-fed, nourished person now who you know responds to my hunger cues and, and eats enough, I find that like I, I like cooking on, you know, on certain occasions, but day in, day out, do I have that same level of obsession? No. I don't need to check the menu before I go to restaurants. And I know some people are like, I don't uh, that's like a teeny little red flag for me when, you know, there's a need to know what's at the restaurant beforehand and choose your food and then fantasize about it all week. I think that might be a sign that there's a level of deprivation there and some sort of mental restriction over certain experiences. And I don't know, I just wonder if you relate to that, having um, gone through an experience of an eating disorder yourself, um, being in recovery whether you kind of have gone through some the path I spoke to Caroline Duna about this the author of the fuck it diet and she said the same thing like you know she had this food blog and which is what my Instagram started as essentially a food blog and she just and kind of related it back to this to to the Minnesota um starvation um study and she yeah the the parallels are so fascinating
0: Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would have identified as a foodie, but definitely really obsessed with food, like always thinking about it, making really weird combinations of food, eating loads of this, you know, very strange, low calorie slash no calorie food, you know, these like noodles made out of, you know, anything other than actually wheat I don't even know what they were made of that were like supposedly you know you know calories you know I don't even know what
1: they're made of no
0: I know they taste horrible they're not (laughs) anything like pasta at all and you know definitely did the whole cauliflower and everything and just all this stuff that just now I would not touch with a barge pole but I did and I spent loads of money as well on this stuff like there's I again don't want to give them the Free advertising but there's a there's a company that makes a lot of zero calorie stuff right yeah. and it's uh with an American company and I would be paying to get stuff like shipped over from America and I was just you know it would have been I would dread to think how much money I actually would have spent on this food well it's not even food that's the thing it's stuff pretending to be food it doesn't fill you up it's not satisfying but when you're stuck in that restrictive mindset it feels like it's a treat you know it's absolutely bizarre what it does to your your brain I think in terms of how you how you think about food and Mm -hmm. I think you you feel like you enjoy food um because you're hungry right When, when you're like you know depriving yourself but actually you're not ever really enjoying it because you're you're always having this inner dialogue about like is this okay does this fit um am I gonna have to change what I eat later on because of this have I tracked this correctly all this kind of inner dialogue that just completely ruins your ability to actually enjoy the food um at all and and now yeah it's I have just a you know completely different relationship with food and it just it feels like it's such a yeah such a different headspace but when you're in it it's just so hard I think to have that perspective and particularly I think if you're surrounding yourself with other people who are similar you know when I was in this kind of macro land it it seemed like everyone was doing that that was a big thing on social media everyone was you know saying oh here's a macro friendly quote-unquote recipe or something here's a hack you know um, all, all this kind of stuff so it seemed very very normal and I think that that's the thing if you are in a group where everyone's kind of doing that even if your behaviors are actually very very disordered they can seem completely normal and i think you know going back to that study i'm sure for the like men in the study they probably weren't that aware because they were all doing it right they were all looking at these recipe books and obsessing about what they were going to eat and 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 so didn't didn't see quite how extreme it was you know um, and I think it's sometimes only once you start to come out of it you look back and you think whoa that was really really disordered and I, I, I can now see that very clearly but at the time I think it, it's so difficult to to have that perspective.
1: I posted a reel recently where I it was like I really thought I was making a, a funny little joke but it kind of went viral, it got like over a million views and the comments and messages I had about it for weeks afterwards, it was about saying how I used to grate courgette or zucchini for international people listening, into my oats. And just kind of laughing at myself being like, I used to do that like every day. And saying that, you know, the only reason I ever did that for, you know, the, my, my sole intention behind that was to create a more vo- more volume in my food. So because I was too scared to actually add the extra oats that I needed. I wasn't quite satisfied with, if I just had the oats on their own. And um, so I thought if I grate courgette into it, I'll make a bigger bowl and it will fill me up more. But obviously it didn't. And, it, you know, now I actually know what a f- satisfaction really feels like. And it was so interesting to see the responses because... And and I really respect that so many people are at different stages with their relationship with food. And, and it was interesting that people who had maybe gone through a lot of healing with their relationship with food, I think completely understood where I was coming from. But there are a lot of people I think who felt a bit triggered and a bit attacked by what I, my, my, what I perceived to be like a little joke. Um, And it was just a really interesting response to the defensiveness. I found there's a lot of defensiveness for people for reasons why they would grate courgette into their oats. And I do, I don't think every single person who does that necessarily has a disordered relationship with food. Because there was a, I mean, a lot of people gave me an interesting perspective on there's a variety of reasons. And there's always nuance to every, every decision we make. So I'd never put you know a blanket response and say, well, if you're not doing, you know, if you are doing it, then clearly you are in the same headspace as me because I don't know what you know, I don't know. But Mm. it was interesting, I think, that a lot of people were really saying, like, but it's a great way to get fibre in your diet and it's a great way to, you know, uh yeah, get an extra one of your five a day or whatever. Um and my thought process behind that, and you know, once again, this is my biased experience and my biased voice telling saying, if you're if you're grating courgette into your oats, you probably don't need to worry about getting your five a day. Um, there's probably a strong chance that you're good. Like if you're going to that level, yeah. The 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 worry you have about your health and your nutrition, um, you're probably doing fine. And it's really interesting to me and I wonder if this is something else you found through the kind of psychology lens of looking through stuff is how I've recently been working with people who um, are low income, have um, really difficult backgrounds and I'm working with people who don't have the time Money, energy, or resources to worry about whether they're getting enough veg in their day that they grate courgette into their oats. Like it would not even be on their radar. They have, they have got real life issues going on that just completely prevent them from thinking about that. And it just made me think that this idea of grain courgette into your oats is a very like you know, um, like I think it's a very privileged issue to have. And it just maybe it just kind of has put into perspective recently for me, like, oh, a lot of this stuff that we really worry about is a really privileged thing to worry about. Because if you have the time and money to buy chia seeds, like your health outcomes are probably gonna be pretty good. Yeah. I like if we're thinking of like a socio economic Standpoint, and also that you know, when we talk about like social determinants of health, I, I think a lot of what the health and fitness industry does is really pick apart the like minute details. Um, and so we don't think about these sort of bigger things at play, which I know this is a slight, um, yeah, absolutely, yeah, a slight detour on what we were chatting about, but yeah, I just found that interesting.
0: Yeah, I agree. And in fact, I, that's one of the things I think is actually uh, an issue in psychology, actually. So I think the thing is with psychology is uh, sometimes it's, it's so uh, fixated on people's thoughts and behaviours that it completely ignores the social context. Um, which is, you know, where things like social determinants of health come in. And it almost assumes that, like, everyone has a choice, right? That it's, oh, it's just about we apply this model of behaviour change to this person, and this person behaves in this very, you know, predictable fashion. And that isn't what happens. Um, And particularly because, you know, we are social beings, right? We interact in, in the world, and actually like you say, with our health outcomes, actually, you know, 70, 80% is actually stuff that's completely outside of our control. And actually even the behavioural elements that yes, do play a role. It's such a minute um, part compared to all all these kind of social factors. So that, and one of the reasons actually in my psychology PhD, I actually ended up borrowing a lot of concepts from sociology because it doesn't make sense to be studying people like separate from, the world, right, I mean, yes, there are times when you have to do things in a kind of controlled lab environment for the purposes of research to be able to isolate factors, but you have to acknowledge that that is so far removed from from the the real world actually and and I think you you're right, I think there's this this idea, particularly in the health and fitness industry, that everyone can make the quote unquote right choice. It's all about just telling people in the right way, you know it's about getting the messaging right, it's about being motivational or inspirational and completely neglects the fact that a lot of people don't even aren't in a position to be able to make that choice, you know in the first place, and I think that is so so often overlooked um and I think it really, really does a disservice to everyone, you know, for, for the people who are, you know, have, um, you know, come from a more, you know, difficult background, or, you know, experiencing various types of, you know, marginalization, clearly, that is completely unhelpful for them. But I don't think it's helpful for anyone, right? Because I think for every, you know, the people who are very privileged, I think it, it, it contributes to them having a warped perspective of health. And also them thinking that, okay, if I do all the quote, unquote, right things in terms of behaviours, I will then guarantee that I will have a, you know, long life, that I won't ever have a health condition, I won't ever, you know, develop any mental health issues. And that's just not the case. You can, you know, again, obviously, if you have less privilege, your your chances of those things are, are higher. But there's no guarantee that you that you won't get these things even if you are you know eating loads of fruit and vegetables exercising regularly doing all the you know the other kind of health behaviors that that we hear about that doesn't mean that you definitely won't get any of these things down the line and i'm sure that everyone will know someone that has you know unfortunately got you know a sort of health condition with that sort of cancer or something like that that you know on on the surface would be seen as like the sort of model of health you know and and I think that that's that's the other thing we we need to understand that a lot of health is outside of our control um you know and I think although that's a bit of a scary concept I suppose because we like to think that we can control things I think it's also quite freeing actually because it means that you can think okay when I'm making a day-to-day decision about what I'm eating it's actually really not life or death whether I put you know courgette in my oats or not whether you know when I'm out at a restaurant my plate had vegetables on or not you can actually you know what in the big scheme of things it actually really doesn't matter
1: I have totally found that as well but I have since I've understood this more and and you know a lot of my healing in terms of my own relationship with food and exercise has really been about letting go of control for a manner of reasons but my desire to control things, I want to chat about this in a sec from your like psychology um, perspective, because I, I do think it's so tied up in in all of this that, yeah, once you are able to just eat, like one of the things that I had to do in my, you know, to heal my relationship with food was be able to have a day where I didn't eat fruit and vegetables and not think like, oh my goodness, it's terrible, like the world is over. um don't get me wrong, I appreciate that, you know, bowel movements are better when we get our fruit and veg. Like, I know that, but to know that things are okay, if, you know, if I didn't get as many, as much of my leafy greens as, you know, like I would usually. And, and I think that's, that has been really freeing for me because those were the kind of minute details I would really get caught up in and really stress out over. Um And so I'm interested in this this idea of control and how control really plays into our desire to have this perfect, well, this, uh, I don't necessarily say so it's a perfect relationship with food, but to control our body, to control what we put in our body and control um, what our body looks like and, you know, to control our health. And once again, kind of speaking from personal experience I know that a lot of my need to control came from having a parent who died which felt completely out of my control you know there was nothing I could do to stop the worst happening and so in other areas of my life to try and make myself you know, my brain would kind of lull me into this false sense of security that, well, if I could just control other things, then bad things won't happen. You know, if I could just control my food, then bad things won't happen to me. If I can control whatever else, then, um, you know, bad things won't happen. And so I've really had to, and it's still a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I'm not going to pretend like I'm, I'm cured, but, um, I've really noticed how that tied up in in my need to control exercise, control food. And I, yeah, I wonder, um, I might be putting you on the spot here, but I just wonder what kind of, what that links with psychology and, and whether there may be some sort of research within that or any anything interesting that you have kind of come across
0: so yeah it's a um, I mean one of the areas where there's been a lot of research on kind of the the need for control um, is kind of in eating disorders and it's quite commonly found that people who have have developed an eating disorder the kind of trigger for that can be traced back to an event that happened in their lives that was outside of their control with me personally it was I was um, being bullied at school the school were doing kind of nothing about it and that for me meant that then i was looking for something where i could control and i think the thing is is it does give you that sense of control right it 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 does it does provide that although it's uh, you know obsessing about you know food exercise your body is very detrimental to your well-being it does still provide that that element of of feeling safe that i think we often crave when when things are when things do feel outside of our control and so I think it's completely natural in a way that we that we turn to these things but I think it's you know it's important to obviously look at actually are are these things that are serving me or are these things that are not serving me and are there other ways that I can gain a sense of control um in in a way that isn't detrimental and also acknowledge that actually there is so much of life that is outside of our control and actually, some of it is just about learning to be able to accept that and deal with it in the moment. Um, I was reading a, a, a book recently um, and they made the analogy of like, um, like waves in the ocean. And they said that the, the goal isn't to, that there should be a completely f- like flat sea with no waves. The, the kind of goal is actually that we go with the waves and we're not completely you know, blown off course by them essentially, and and learning that actually we do have the strength uh, and skills and things within ourselves to navigate these areas that are hugely difficult. Um and you know that these things will continue to happen throughout our lives, but actually we do have tools within us within us that we can use. And also again, you know, going back to the kind of social elements that we can you know turn to the people around us as well because I think that's the other thing with you know not only necessarily eating disorders but you know disorders eating and things often you do really really isolate yourself from other people um and I think it's reminding yourself that actually you know you do probably have these areas of of social support that you're maybe not not using to the um extent that you could be and actually if you were using some of these people that you've got in your life that you can, you know, that you can confide in and that you, you know, sort of can trust, actually you can use those people to help you, uh, you know, navigate some of these more difficult, um, you know, things that um, you're going through. And actually probably other people have maybe gone through similar things and you can gain a lot from that. And that can actually um, negate the need to feel like you have to isolate yourself and, and focus on these Tiny areas within within your life that give you that uh, short term, you know, sense of control, but in the long term, you know, just just don't don't serve you. Um, but I think it's interesting in a way with psychology because I feel like there are there are aspects where I think it's almost useful for our well being to have a slightly more um, positive and optimistic outlook. Than is perhaps the reality, if that makes sense. So I think it's probably helpful for all of us to think we have slightly more control than we actually do um, to, to get by day to day. Because I think the idea that oh, actually, so much is outside of our control is so hard to get your head around.
1: Yeah. Otherwise, I think we fall into this. There is this, yeah, potential to kind of fall into the like, well it's completely all out of my control. There's nothing I can do and kind of getting quite nihilistic about the whole thing and almost like switching off from stuff. Um, Yeah, and I I suppose, once again, comparing that to myself, thinking uh, even though I know there are other, there are lots of forces at play, knowing there are other forces at play, um, I still feel like there are things I can do to, you know, help me do certain things and, and help me, um, you know, look after myself and, you know, both physically and emotionally. So one thing I think it would be really important to talk about on this podcast is the the criticism that um intuitive eating, intuitive movement, health at every size has garnered from other parts of the fitness industry. And I've seen that you've, you know, big names in, in kind of the fitness space that are very um pro-macro counting, pro bodybuilding, all that kind of stuff, have been quite vocal about, you know, dissecting your work and really um picking apart this other argument. I mean, I've seen that there are total accounts online whose whose sole mission is like um, to to kind of bring down like intuitive eating, for example, and and bring down this and th- this idea that you know weight is not a behavior, and you know there are certain elements of our health that are out of control, especially when it comes to people in larger bodies there are people who really want, who don't want this to, who don't want to acknowledge any of the sort of research. And um, yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts were. I mean, that's quite, there's that's an extreme example of criticism, but I just wondered what your thoughts were on the criticism that things like health at every size and intuitive eating and intuitive movement receive and is any of it valid are there you know is there are there things where we do still need answers to certain aspects you know i know that research is always evolving and growing like are there holes in the literature are there more things we need to know about
0: yeah i mean i think it's interesting isn't it i mean there definitely i think yeah is a lot of backlash i mean in terms of personally i i don't experience a huge amount and i think that is um you know a big part because of being in a smaller body i think Thin privilege does mean that you don't get as much flack as if you're in a large body saying exactly the same things. Um Interestingly enough, when I've had criticism, um, it's rarely been people that have come to my page and left comments. It's people that have left comments on their own page, um, either reposting one of my posts or just tagging me. And so they're kind of posting to their own audience who already agree with them. <laughs> and sometimes posting actually just a small snippet of actually what I've said in or at least tried to say in a kind of nuanced nuanced way um if people aren't familiar with my Instagram it's basically I do sort of like slides so generally it'll be between like seven and ten slides where I'll reference usually between like 15 and 20 studies on a post so it's you know it's quite dense and quite quite heavy um, stuff but quite often when people have critiqued it's been they've pulled out one of them sometimes not actually read the study that I've I've talked about um and so and that hasn't really led then for a constructive discussion because I don't necessarily then want to jump onto their page, and you know jump into their comment section and then likely be attacked by all of their kind of followers. I mean, I, I definitely have had that experience where, again, a big a big name in the fitness industry reposted one of the slides from one of my um, one of my posts, and for about a week after that, I had a barrage of. Um, abuse essentially via dms via responses to my stories comments on my posts all sorts of different things sometimes just saying nasty things um even had claims that i'd made up my phd that <laughs> i don't really have that that um, you know all sorts of sort of personal criticism um and that luckily has been a one-off and since then i've i've put um uh, restrictions in place as to who can send me a dm who can respond to my stories and who can comment on my posts just to protect my own well-being because as much as I'm happy for there to be a constructive dialogue it does have to be constructive just name calling doesn't achieve anything it doesn't move move any kind of dialogue forward I I wish actually there were more um, platforms for the kind of weight centric and the kind of anti-diet approach is to actually come together and have um you know debates and and discussions um and i will say i have sometimes volunteered to debate with these people and and things but have never been taken up on it um because i think there are probably things that um actually maybe could be achieved by coming together as much as i'm you know i'm a really really you know passionate advocate for health every size i i don't think that intentional weight loss is health promoting um you know in in any context i still think there are areas if we if we came together we'd actually find that there's quite a lot that we actually agree on um and and actually i i think that would be you know would be really helpful um i mean certainly you mentioned with research there are areas we do need more research on although there's an increasing amount of research say about intuitive eating i think there's now nearly 150 studies on it that's still, it's still largely in its infancy, um, and particularly areas around like intuitive eating and health conditions. So more recently, there's been a handful of studies on things like intuitive eating and diabetes and really encouraging findings, um, indicating that actually, if you do have diabetes, you can take a more intuitive approach, um, with food as opposed to the kind of, um, standard treatment, which would often be actually, um, counting like carbohydrates and things in, in food. Um, and you know, then dosing insulin and things, um, you know, based based on that. And so that's really encouraging. to actually a more.
1: Is that a is that type one or type two diabetes? Just to clarify.
0: Yeah. So type type one is usually when you're um, using insulin injections, and type two is when you're um, typically on a medication. Um, but um, often treatment for both would involve actually counting uh, carbohydrates in uh, in food. Um, that's the kind of standard, um, sort of treatment. Um, so, but with the studies, it's actually, um, actually both types, um, of, of um, of diabetes that have been shown to potentially benefit from an intuitive eating approach. Um, and in fact, also gestational diabetes, which is when, um, people in pregnancy, um, get, get diabetes where they haven't, um, before. So, Things like that are really, really encouraging. We definitely do need more research, and I think particularly around people that have chronic health conditions, um, as well. You know, maybe things like sort of you know Crohn's and um, celiac things like that. I do think we we definitely need more research about how intuitive eating sort of maybe you know fits in fits in with that. Um, but I you know I think we we do have a really solid base base of evidence, um, and I, and I think. Um, you know, equally, there is now overwhelming evidence that really dieting isn't beneficial for for health and well being. And you know, I, I think that we need to be we we need to be really, really honest about about that. Um, and you know, because that that isn't new, right? We've known, like, you know, this Ansel Key study that I talked about earlier was published in 1950, and so since then, really, we've known that, that dieting isn't um, isn't health promoting and also doesn't actually result in long-term weight loss for the vast majority of people right roughly 85 percent of people will regain at least the weight they lost on a diet if not more um so we know actually even from that perspective if you take the health out health equation out of it just on a you know kind of mathematical level it doesn't really make sense to be continuing to advocate for something that has a 15 percent success rate um but yeah, research is evolving. We definitely need, need, need more. Um, I think in terms of areas like weight stigma, we also need more research. One of the um, although there's a, a real large body of evidence demonstrating the harms of, of, of weight stigma um, I' just sorry if anyone's not familiar with weight stigma that's bias and discrimination against people in larger bodies, and that being proportional to body size of so the larger a person's body and body is, the more weight stigma they will experience. One, although we have a lot of research about the harms of experiencing weight stigma for mental and physical health, what we don't really have is very good um, ways of measuring weight stigma at the moment. So there are a few of these, um, you know, tick lists and, and things like that. But because weight stigma is very complex, it's very nuanced. A lot of the people that are experiencing weight stigma won't necessarily be aware of the fact they are experiencing weight stigma, won't necessarily know the term weight stigma. Um, we need to think very, very carefully about how we're actually studying it, and I think that's where we need people in larger bodies actually contributing to developing these measures of weight stigma to make sure that we are um assessing it in research in a nuanced, complex, and meaningful way. Um, so that we can then you know better find out you know not only more about its its impact but more importantly actually how we go about how we go about addressing addressing it as well in in different contexts um
1: it is really interesting like you say that we're trying to advocate for intentional weight loss when we like you say we're you know there's a a 15 percent chance it might work for you i know often we talk about the 95 percent um Stat that 95% of diets fail. That's said a lot. Um, I think if you, if you read my book, actually train happy, you'll see that I'm um, Laura Thomas did a fantastic kind of summary. Um, i really, I really communicated well that, um, when we look at, you know, a whole range of studies in this, the kind of average is about 85%. So, um, we're looking at more like 15% success rates, but even so incredibly low. Um, but I think it is interesting that, yeah, there's um, there's that stat that gets often quoted that can be a slightly misleading. Um, and so I really tried, I try not to quote it myself because I think um, it, it, we need to, yeah, just, just make sure. But also um, the whole pushback and criticism stuff I think is largely related to the fact that people's whose livelihood and kind of core values are built on this idea that, you know, they lost weight and they achieved something and they built a business on telling other people how to do it. Um, it, it, it's a huge thing to reconcile with and to have worked in a weight centric way for a long time and advocated for dieting for a long time as a personal trainer, a fitness coach, as a fitness guru, whatever your whole thing is, you know, you've got an app or whatever, to then do a U-turn on that and go, actually, I realized what I did was causing harm, led to eating disorders, um, left a lot of people emotionally and physically hurt, um, is a lot to, to do. And I think particularly as there's a lot of the pushback I am seeing are from very vocal men and tied that, tie that all in with like ego, toxic masculinity, the element of, um, you know, they've invested so much time and energy and effort into something. And therefore to kind of objectively question it, I think would be a huge U-turn that, I don't know if I expect people to make, um, and those that do make that U-turn, I think are extremely brave, courageous people who are really honest. And I think of someone like Dr. Joshua Woolrich, who really did a 180 in what he advocated for online and has been really honest about how, and shared openly with his audience, how he kind of got to where he is now. Um, But it's a lot of kind of unlearning and challenging that to do. Um, And yeah, when your business model is built on profiting off of before and after photos, you're not going to stop doing before and after photos because it might have made you tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of pounds. So it's really lucrative. Why would you stop now?
0: Yeah, and I think as well, one of the things with psychology is actually we don't really know how to change people's perspective. Um, So there was a really interesting study that was done once where people, um, I, I think it was in a political context, had particularly strong opinions one way or the other. And in the study, they were presented with information that contradicted their perspective. And they got them to rank the uh, the strength of their their perspective before and after being presented with this information. And you would expect, right, that after being presented with contradictory information, that perhaps they would go from being, say, an eight out of 10 to maybe six or, or whatever. But actually, their ratings went up. <laughs> after having been predicted with contradictory information, they actually doubled down on what they already believed, um, which is that defensiveness that you're speaking to? So I, I think that is the thing. We also don't really know exactly the best way to go about it, encouraging someone to kind of change their perspective. You know, we all have our own stories that I think are really valuable in in terms of how we came to this this approach. But I think it is very very difficult because, again, as humans, we don't like to admit that we're that we're wrong, right? We we like this sense of and it partly goes back to this sense of control, right? Do you know, I mean, we like this idea of this this stability. This is what I believe. This is how it is. This is the way it always will be. Always has been, you know, because that's easier for our brains, you know, cognitively, right? Our brains are always trying to take shortcuts, right, and and make things simple and put things in boxes um, because that's very efficient, right? That saves up resources for harder decisions that we might have to make. But actually, that means that we end up thinking in this very, you know, can end up thinking this very binary, binary way of, of thinking. And I think that's the other thing with this anti-diet approach. It's not only that it's a different approach, but it's that it's a complex approach. It's a nuanced approach. It doesn't have a definitive, um, this is the, you know, 10 step program that everyone should do for ultimate health and well-being. It is much more um yeah you know nuanced complex than that and doesn't always have straightforward solutions and not you know a lot of the things that really need to change are on a kind of systemic and societal level they're not at the individual level and that's I guess a harder thing to get your head around um because again it's it's much uh simpler to think okay it's it's about individuals and individuals just doing the the right things and then that will equal that will equal health um you know, so it's so I yeah, I have complete admiration for anyone that that changes their perspective, and particularly people who are uh, transparent about the process of how they came to question themselves. And, uh, you know, and and how that continues to to evolve, I think, you know, I mean, certainly, for myself, I have evolved um, over time, since coming into a kind of anti diet space, I certainly early on, did not do enough acknowledgement of having, you know, not only thin privilege, but, you know, numerous other types of, of privilege, you know, I'm white, middle class, able bodied, you know, all those kinds of things. I didn't talk enough about the the social determinants of health. Um, I certainly didn't talk about weight stigma enough, and actually how much harder it is to live in a larger body in, you know, in the world that, that we live in, because, you know, fat phobia is just so so pervasive particularly in in the fitness industry and just how much energy it can just take to survive within that that kind of context you know so i think um you know and i hope that i will hopefully continue to kind of evolve in terms of becoming more um aware of you know social issues social justice issues um the language i'm using as well i think we need to be really really careful that we're not using healthist or ableist language when when we we're, we're talking about things you know not um assuming that everyone should aspire to a particular level of of health that everyone can you know i think we we've, we've always there's always things that we can do better um and i you know hope hope that i will will continue to to do so but i think you're right i think that the the hardest step is accepting what you've done has led to harm Um, I think that's the hardest and scariest bit. But I think once you've done that, actually, then it does get easier, because you learn more, and you become, you you know, hopefully meet other people who are taking an anti diet approach as well. I think that can be hugely helpful if you've got a bit of a community, whether that's online or offline. Um, And I think, you know, as you continue to do more work, you can become more, uh, more confident in the approach, you know, not only with The science that is continuing to build but also with personal experiences I think so many people have got stories of having been on a you know really restrictive diet and that really messing them up and you know you know equally them having come to a more intuitive approach and hopefully if people working with their clients they'll do you know I mean they'll see their clients benefiting from this intuitive approach and I think it all that can just serve to reinforce this anti-diet approach that at the offset seems really really radical um but actually over time becomes uh seemingly less radical right um yeah and easier to to fully accept and and adopt in your um you know practice as a you know as a professional or just as a you know as as a person right as well
1: and what you're saying speaks to the wider conversation and this could be a whole other podcast episode and something i'm really fascinated in of this idea of these kind of polarizing views and you're either for us or you're against us and um, that there needs to be some sort of shades of grey, I think, for people to to have the grace to reflect on their own practices and what they've been doing and be afforded the grace of changing their mind and changing their approach. Um without being kind of cast out as saying like well you're an awful person for advocating for intentional weight loss because I think you know I think it's the Maya Angelou quote of once you know better you do better and and I do think there are a lot of people who just don't know are unaware I, I think it's a different scenario when people are aware and like you say they double down on their views and they they only become more steadfast in what they and firm in their approach Um, but I think yeah we could do we need to work on allowing more grace and I recognize I say this with with thin privilege of you know um, but yeah there, there needs to be a sense of like let's have honest open conversations and where we're allowed to question things and we're allowed to you know You know, say you're a personal trainer right now and you're going like, hang on a second. I thought I was doing the best thing and I wanna do new things, but I'm not sure. Like we need to be able to have conversations with people and people need to be able to have say certain things without feeling like, you know, they're um, written off as a person. And I think that's really important. And yeah, I hope this podcast can be part of that. People questioning stuff and thinking like, wow, there, there is a different way and I, I could do things differently. Um, you know, and when I am presented with new information, I can be aware of the harm I've caused, apologize for the harm and I've caused and, you know, try and, and do better, you know, try and do better. Um, And recognize that even when you're trying to do better, you may still make mistakes along the way. I think that's, and I imagine like with, you know, my, um, I'm definitely a like um, armchair psychologist, but it's part of the humanness of being human that we are gonna not be right. And it's, you know, we are contradictory and complex people. And so expecting us to always be right about everything and always get stuff right and yeah is is a is a lot of pressure to put on people and and I do feel that pressure on social media and I do feel that pressure in the kind of this this world that seems to want to desperately live in a binary when there's gonna be shades of gray in the middle for people because that's life big thoughts but what do you think
0: (laughs) yeah I completely agree and I think it is really difficult to to do that and i think it, that's the thing it's not it's not an intelligence thing do you know what i mean it's not a case of like oh you know you're not bright enough to kind of challenge these things because there have been loads of cases in research where we've thought things and actually we've realized oh no we were completely wrong about that i mean one of the um things that's talked about within the social sciences um is is this kind of uh, replication crisis where essentially A bunch of studies were done in the 1950s and 60s. People thought, okay, sounds about right. Let's we'll just accept that as the truth. Right. One of them, for example, was the idea of willpower being a limited resource. Right. People thought, yeah, that makes sense. Believe that. Put that to bed. Move on with other stuff. But then what happened is they tried to then replicate a bunch of these studies that they'd originally done in the 1950s and 60s. And they found actually they couldn't replicate them um, and they didn't get the same strength of findings as they had got originally. Um, And so there was this then case of, oh, so we actually don't know as much as we thought (laughs) about psychology. We, we, We did these studies once. We thought, yep, that sounds about right. And we just accepted it. And still, you still get some of these studies that were originally done um, that have since been kind of debunked, but that continue to prevail, you know, and you'll get them still referenced in in papers that are written. So I think that's a thing as well. It's not even it's it's not it's like it's not an intelligence thing that, you know, the people with PhDs and stuff are still as prone to um, thinking of things in a more kind of binary way and struggling to Uh, challenge things that they have you know um taken for granted as as being true um but I think it it's so important to do that and and to continue to be aware um of our tendency to not want to challenge our our existing our existing beliefs um and I think it's it's really useful whether you have a practice of you know something like journaling can be a great great way to do that to just be able to kind of check in with kind of like where you are and if you are being confronted with different information how are you doing that are you completely rejecting it are you engaging with it you know how how are you doing that because it's so important for all of us to kind of continue to to evolve and and learn more and and do better once once we do know more and and be okay with accepting that you're wrong it doesn't mean you're a bad person i completely agree with you that i think the vast majority of health and fitness professionals think they're doing the right thing for their clients right their clients are coming to them for weight loss so they're giving them what they think their clients want and what they are have been told in their you know personal training qualification they should be doing right um so i, I completely agree i i think yes there are some people that that know and just want the paycheck i that that i'm sure exists but i think that is actually a minority i think the vast majority of people think that they are doing the best thing for their their clients um and you know i also don't want to deny that maybe some people will say oh yeah well i you know my client had this particular health outcome or 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 whatever that 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 happened that was that was positive because that's the thing it doesn't mean even if someone's taking a weight-centric approach they're doing everything wrong right maybe actually they've given their client a really good um i don't know a fitness program in the gym that they're that they're loving and they've gained confidence with their abilities and feeling strong and empowered and all of that that's all great do you know what i mean so i think that's the other thing it doesn't mean just because someone's from a weight centric perspective that everything has to go out the window yes you know we can i think agree that you know get rid of the scales, get, you know, get rid of measuring people and, and and weight being a focus, but actually loads of the other kind of skills and experience that they've um, developed um, as a personal trainer, they can still use all of that within an intuitive framework. And actually one of the cool things about an intuitive framework is it gives you even more options and and tools and things you can do because you're not, um, you know, having to focus on this weight as being an outcome and, you know, do Everything being towards that end, you can actually explore all these, you know, all different types of movement that your your clients might enjoy. And, you know, I think that can actually be quite exciting, hopefully, as, as a as a personal trainer, if you are working in this space.
1: I totally agree. And as like I say, a personal trainer that kind of made that transition um, a lot of what I do in some ways hasn't changed. But what has changed is often my language, the way I speak and the intention behind why we're doing things and so a lot of that is things that I that are easier to change and then of course things like not taking photos not asking your clients to step on the scales you know those sorts of details in there as well um but you right you don't have to throw everything out um you there are certainly things you can can do now I wanted to highlight um a uh, sort of organization you're a part of which is the fitness professionals against weight stigma um, and which is an organization kind of that is trying to bring together personal trainers who want to work from a more intuitive health at every size um, anti-diet approach and to give people more information, training. Um, I know there's like hope for qualifications that people can do and and all these things in the works. And you're part of a team of, of trainers sort of spearheading this in the UK. And so I'd love to just briefly hear a little bit about Fitness Professionals Against Weight Stigma, um, because I know that there will be trainers listening who would... Um, be, you know really interested in and in what you are all doing
0: yeah sure yeah so I'm one of the kind of co-directors of f 4s which stands for um health professionals against weight stigma um so I'll just shorten it to, to f pause um and yeah that's something I set up with um two other amazing health professionals um Becky and Amy um and the idea is yeah like you said that we're trying to provide a kind of community for people who um are practicing from an anti-diet um framework and it's sometimes it's personal trainers um sometimes it's um coaches that work like online and also like fitness instructors so uh, they teach classes and things um and a lot of people are fairly new to the the space so um you know and, and what we want to do really is help give people the confidence to actually feel able to take an intuitive approach with their clients because quite often they might be the only person in their gym who's taking this approach everyone else is doing a mainstream approach and it can be really really scary to feel like you're doing something different on your own that is going against the mainstream um so yeah we want to provide different kind of tools and resources so um for example one of the things i do is something called science saturdays where uh once a month on um saturday um i look at a particular aspect of, of research and kind of go through that and the idea of that is not only to provide people with a bit more knowledge about research in a particular area but also get people more confident um with actually being able to read research for themselves and also being able if their clients or other fitness professionals are coming to them saying hey i read this study that said this or whatever being more able to navigate those kinds of of conversations as well um and you know we also have um yeah different kind of community sessions as well where um you know it's a, a mixture of kind of presenting but also having a platform for discussions um, about how we um navigate all different aspects of of working with clients within this kind of anti-diet approach and also troubleshoot you know what are still some of the challenges how do you deal with it when a client comes to you adamant that they want to lose weight you know how how do you deal with people in different life stages you know in you know pregnancy or you know these kinds of things what if your client has a a health condition or you know a particular injury or all these different kinds of things so um it's yeah it's a really friendly close-knit community um and we're all you know trying to kind of learn and engage with each other I mean like I said I'm you know, a co-director with, with Becky and Amy, but, you know, I learn just as much from the community as I hope they, they do from, from um, you know, my sessions and, and things. So, um, yeah, I'm so happy to be, to be a part of it. And like you mentioned, one of our kind of overarching um, end goals is to eventually change the uh, personal training qualifications, um, because at the moment, they're quite narrow. They're quite lacking. There are things that aren't on the syllabus that really, really should be. So things like weight stigma is not even mentioned um, at all. Um, you know, we want you know um, fitness professionals entering the industry to know about that and also be able to make um, adaptations for people with different abilities, for people in larger bodies, um, so that they are able to work with all different kinds of um, clients and do so in a way that is ethical and. And evidence-based so um, that's our kind of one of our end goals that we want to do to to get there but um, on the way you know we're just trying to um, yeah change things I guess on a more you know in individual level and and hopefully that will have a bit of a, um, a domino effect right because hopefully some of these fitness professionals if they're in their gym and people are seeing that they're taking this different approach with their clients they might think oh actually that's something Maybe I should look into that or, or whatever, you know, um, and so I hope that there will be a positive effect that way, you know, little by little, because I think it can feel like you're almost going up against a brick wall sometimes, you know, um, but I think actually, if we feel like we're making small, consistent inroads, actually, that is really, really encouraging, um, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully empowering.
1: So for those people listening who want to find out more about fitness professionals against weight stigma, I will link all of that in the show notes so people can find it. Um, Before we go, Emma, because we had such a great conversation, I've just really, really loved everything we've chatted about today. And I definitely think we have to do this again. There's so many things we could talk about. Um, I'd love to know um, what has been your most recent train happy moment or not necessarily most recent but what has been a train happy moment that's really stood out for you recently um that has been a kind of a win on your own journey um personally
0: and professionally yeah sure yeah so yeah thanks again so much for um, having me i've really really enjoyed our conversation um for me actually i think um i recently have got quite into like triathlon um and i did actually a duathlon recently which is an event where you do a run a bike ride and then a run and um i recently did an event in uh, richmond park um and um my parents both came to watch me and i wasn't sure if i was actually going to be able to see them during the event but like when i was on the bike um part of the thing i just came sort of riding around and i saw them and like they waved and it was just lovely because i just thought it's for me everything that um i want exercise to be i was in a lovely setting so i was really relaxed um you know having lots of fun and like with people that I really care about as well so um yeah that was uh that was it for me it was uh yeah really really fun thing to do um that I'd yeah definitely like to do uh do again sometime and um, I really like um exercising outside in um and luckily live in London where there are so many lovely um parks to be able to to do that
1: oh yeah that sounds so so great and just so lovely you're able to like i say do these events now that events are back and you're able to compete and kind of challenge yourself that's really cool um for those people wanting to hear more from you to find more of your work like i say you kind of said on instagram your your posts are really informative and if you're looking for more you know to be pointed in the direction of research and evidence there's you're all you like i say you've always got plenty to share so where can people find you find your work and
0: support you yeah sure yeah so instagram's definitely the best place to find me um yeah my handle is emma fitness phd um yeah i love like people you know um sharing their experiences and things in the comment section usually have a really kind of lively um you know comment section so um definitely you know jump in and get get involved um i'm also really happy to answer any questions you have as well about the post or if you want to find more studies always happy to to um signpost people um And also, if there are any topics that you'd like me to post about, um, I'm always happy to do that. You can just send me send me a message. Um, And yeah, link in my bio is really the best place to find anything else about me. You can find out about F4s there, about how to work with me one on one and also read um, some of the articles I've written as well um, in the past
1: fab thank you so much emma this has been a real pleasure a real treat i hope i know this has been a slightly longer chat but i really hope everyone's taken so much from it because um i personally found it very interesting so um thank you And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the Train Happy Trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too, and it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will speak to you soon.